Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. I found out this week that my favorite manager is moving from our Miami Beach store to North Carolina, and he's going to be taking off in just a few days. I asked him why he's moving, why he's doing it so suddenly, and he went on to tell me the impromptu story of how he and his wife were almost murdered the other night, and the cop told him it was because they were living in the wrong place at the wrong time. He and his girlfriend, like me and mine, live in the first of a two-story condo, and he and his girlfriend, like me and mine, pay about $2,200 a month for 500 square feet of space. For the couple months they've been living together in this building, there's been a new building, identical to theirs, under construction right next door. Fortunately, he says the place is mostly finished, so he doesn't get woken up at, on his days off at 9am and 10am by the sound of heavy tools, but he says the project is still incredibly distracting because it seems like every single day the construction workers are getting into an argument with the property owner, someone from the company who comes out and oversees the work that they're doing. Recently, one of the workers shouted at the property owner that he wouldn't be back until he got paid, and then he stormed off the site with his colleagues kind of just looking at each other for a little bit and then following along meekly. That happened on a Friday, and the following Monday, no workers showed up to the construction site. And in their absence, my manager was telling me the whole day felt kind of eerie to have nobody next door after, you know, these two months of pretty much constant disruption. But then later that night, uh, that same Monday, at around 11 p.m., he got a knock on his door. It was a guy with a clipboard and a little electric device who said, hey, do you mind if I pop in here and, and measure something? Because I'm from the gas company, and we think there might be a small leak somewhere in the building. My manager says, okay, sounds terrifying. Yes, come right in. Opens the door, and he lets the guy from the gas company into his apartment. And the guy from the gas company, he tweaks his little device, and he holds it in the air, and the device starts beeping. He's walking through the apartment, he's waving it slowly over his head, and it keeps on beeping, and it's beeping faster and faster, especially over by the front window. Eventually he turns off the device, and my manager makes note of the beeping, and he says, is that a, like a really bad thing? And the man from the gas company kind of shrugs, and he, he makes a note on his clipboard, pulls out his phone, and he starts dialing a number, and he's walking toward the door, and he says, there's some trace amounts in the air, so like, don't light anything, don't don't strike any matches just in case, but no, it's, it's not a big deal. I'm gonna leave this door unlocked, because I'm gonna be right back, I just have to make a call. And with that, the man from the gas company leaves. A couple minutes later, my manager sees lights on his bedroom curtain, and when he goes to the window, there's two fire trucks on his lawn and three police cars in the street closing off the area. Firemen come into his apartment, back with the man from the gas company, and they're decked out in all their gear, and, and because they cut such huge figures in the apartment, which again is 500 square feet, my manager says, hold on guys, and he goes to turn on an extra light. But a fireman grabs his arm and yanks it down, and he says, don't turn on any lights, get your girlfriend, and get out. So that's what he does. He grabs his girlfriend, and they get out. He's in his pajamas in the flickering strobe lights of all these emergency response cars, and he's watching through his bedroom window as firemen move through his apartment. Finally, the firemen and the guy from the gas company, they all come out onto the lawn and they say, you know, we opened the windows, we got some of the gas out, but we don't think it's coming from your unit, at least. It might not even be coming from your building. We don't know where it's coming from. Then the guy from the gas company, who's maybe a little more attuned to these kinds of things, he starts sniffing around and he catches a scent and he says he's got an idea and he turns the little gas detector on and he starts waving it in the air and it starts beeping 
and then beeping faster. And he he goes, he follows a certain scent and it starts beeping faster and faster as he's getting toward the building next door. The one that's almost done being built. The one that all those guys walked out on last week when it was clear that they weren't going to get paid. Firemen go toward that building, which is dark, it's unoccupied, and when they open the front door, gently, people in the street start turning and scrambling back and somebody screams because a milky, hazy, undulating cloud of gas comes sort of warbling out from the doorway and it sort of does that shimmery, dancey thing in the air, like distorting things. Firemen go inside, they open every window, and they see with their flashlights that the knobs on every stove in every apartment were turned all the way on. Turns out one of the construction workers from the previous week, furious about not getting paid and convinced that the check was not forthcoming, had gone systematically from one apartment to the next and turned on the gas before leaving. My manager said it just sent him off a cliff in terms of anger and he just called his building manager and he was able to terminate his lease and leave without any kind of penalty. This manager, who used to be a chef at fine dining restaurants, is in his mid-40s now, maybe his late 40s, and he keeps a tight lid on what he says was once a very formidable temper, and a temper that he got comfortable with, because when you're working in a kitchen where things are going really fast, it's really hot, everyone's getting hurt and the customers can't hear you, it's okay to let your feelings out now and then in the most colorful language you can manage. But now, as a very visible manager in a retail space for the first time, it's not so permissible to be openly pissed off. And you can tell when he's trying really hard. The other day, I had to buzz him over to my register and we need a manager to green light a refund. So the manager comes over and he speaks directly to the woman and he says, what are you trying to return? And the customer in her Gucci jacket and her Apple watch and her light distorting jewelry reaches into her purse and presents him with a one pound bar of chocolate from which she has taken large, neat bites and after that, she pulls out a large bottle of carrot juice. And the carrot juice was three quarters empty. He looks at the two items, he doesn't really know what to make of it, and so he asks her, what's wrong with the chocolate? And she says, I, I didn't, I had two bites, I didn't like it. And he says, okay, and how about the carrot juice? I didn't like that either. And at this point, his, I can see his smile is becoming a little bit tighter. There's something very rhythmic and practiced about his breathing, and he says, okay, well, I notice you drank about three quarters of the carrot juice. No, I didn't. And she takes her phone out at that point and she looks at the screen and she starts scrolling. And often people do this because they've got a photo of their receipt or they're gonna show you a photo of, you know, the last time they bought a flower like this, how it died, whatever. Something pertaining to the transaction. But as my manager and I stood there waiting for a little while, it became clear that she was just on her phone. She just decided she was done with the conversation and now she was browsing something. So we wait a beat. My manager is steadying himself, and then he says, Well, I noticed that the carrot juice is down to the last quarter. It spilled. Okay, how did it spill? It just spilled. I don't know. There's something wrong with it. My manager took a deep breath, and he looked at me, and I looked at the leaping carrot juice, and then I looked at my shoes, because that's the good thing about not being paid very much as a crew member, is you can just defer these things to a higher authority. He said, Okay, ma'am, uh, wh where's the spill so I can make sure it gets cleaned up? I don't know. And she smacks her phone against her thigh. Somewhere, come on. And my manager just 
nods and he goes to the computer and he starts putting in codes for a return and he says to her uh, do you want your money back in cash or do you want it to be put on your card she rolls her eyes and she smacks her phone on her thigh again and she says i did not say i wanted to return it i said i'm buying these things here and she points at the other things in her cart and i'm not buying these because they're bad and that is when she points at the malfunctioning carrot juice and the one pound bar of chocolate that was only delicious for two or three ounces. That's what I'm saying. I'm not returning them. I'm just telling you, I'm not paying for this, all right? David Foster Wallace wrote a long essay for Gourmet Magazine once called Consider the Lobster about his visit to the huge annual lobster festival in Maine. This is like 20 years ago. I don't know if it's still there. Where on that particular year, visitors uh, to the festival were accosted by PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, which was hosting a virulent demonstration against the cruelty of boiling lobsters alive. Wallace, in, the, in that piece, he digresses from his coverage of the festival in order to talk about the science and the ethical turmoil regarding whether lobsters suffer when they're being boiled. It turns out they don't have the sorts of receptors that make them susceptible to pain the way that we experience pain, but he points out that when you go to drop a lobster into the pot, it will, almost invariably, start to hook its claws over the side of the pot and it will cling to the side of the pot. And he says that this is clearly, if nothing else, an expression of choice. This lobster would prefer to be someplace other than the boiling pot of water. So even if it's not hurting the lobster, the fact of the matter is he's expressing a choice and maybe it's ethically incumbent on us to respect the choice of the animal, even if we're not quote unquote hurting it. And Wallace goes on to argue that this digression seems appropriate because the tagline for Gourmet Magazine is quote, the magazine of good living. And he says that there is a moral resonance to the line good living of which the editors cannot possibly be totally oblivious. And I've noticed that when people are returning something at the grocery store, their complaint is that the item is bad. Not broken, not spoiled, not sour or stale or tasteless. They say, also, I'd like to return this if that's okay. And when you ask, is anything wrong with it? They tend to just like scrunch their face or shake their head and they'll say, I don't know, it's, it went bad. It is bad or it was bad or it went bad. And it's coming to mind now as I think back on what a good time I've had working with that manager who's taking off, and that he's had a really honest, I think, honorable, hardworking career. First as a kitchen manager, then, you know, sort of lower ranks in retail, ascending to the position of management. And then he just, like the cop says, happens to pay for an apartment in the wrong place, wrong time. And now he's taking that $2,200 that gets him 500 square feet on Miami Beach, and he's renting a three-bedroom house in North Carolina for the same amount of money. And I guess it just made me think, whether you're getting an apartment, or you're buying the labor of a construction worker, or you're buying a one pound bar of chocolate, or a bottle of leaping carrot juice, the only thing that's always true, except for when it's not, is that you get what you pay for.